welcome to Behavior Grooves, the podcast that explores stories, science, and secrets from the world's brightest thought leaders for the curious at heart. I'm Kurt Nelson. And I'm Tim Houlihan. We like to explore human behavior that will improve your relationships, your well-being, and your organization by helping you find your groove. From best-selling authors to researchers, you will learn insights from the sharpest minds in behavioral science, as well as psychology, behavioral economics, and neuroscience. We help you uncover behavioral tools and tactics that will help you lead a more fulfilling and purposeful life. And in this episode, we share some fascinating insights from one of the world's greatest researchers in psychology. God, so true, Kurt. Uh, Eric Johnson is a marketing professor at Columbia University, where he holds the Norman Eig Chair of Business, and he's the director of the Center for Decision Science. Eric has studied the way behavioral decision science research, economics, and decisions made by consumers and business leaders, of course, all come together in the real world. Eric has explored how options are presented to decision makers and how the framing of those options affect their choices. He is well-known for his research on organ donation, choices about environmentally friendly products, and investments. His work has appeared in the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and he's appeared on a variety of U.S. television and radio news programs. Eric's work helps bring the interesting concepts of this research to life. Of course, Eric is also the author of a newly published book called The Elements of Choice, Why the Way We Decide Matters. And we definitely spent some time hearing about some of the cool things that he covers in this fascinating and excellent book. Yeah. In our conversation with Eric, we made sure that we asked him about that amazing organ donation study and how there's some after the commitment stuff that we rarely hear about, like how the actual donation rate doesn't necessarily equal the commitment rate. You see, even with an organ donation commitment, doctors regularly ask family members how they'd like to proceed. So we talked to Eric about that. And we also talked about how we're all designers. And of course, we also talked to Eric about the incredible power of defaults. We also talked about how defaults aren't some magic solution to every problem, and we discussed some of the more important moderating effects that designers, that we all are, Tim, need to take into consideration when they're thinking about using said defaults. Eric also brought up a cool term that we really liked. It's assembled decision. Eric believes that our preferences are not perfectly predefined on every topic and every issue. And therefore, he says that our preferences get assembled when we come into situations where we need to make a decision. We assemble our preferences in the moment in order to make that decision. Oh, it's such a cool idea. Uh, and before we get to our conversation with Eric, I just want to give some shout outs to some of our listeners who have shared some very kind words with us recently. So a big thanks to, and I'm going to, I might get these incorrect so please you'll do bear great with me. man you'll do you'll do fantastic on these but there you go anna lose raymond little one i lingo Azalean, and nick malanga 95 okay all of those folks have given us some very kind words and we appreciate their praise and just want to say thank you thank you thank you for listening and for leaving us a review yeah, and those were reviews on Podbean. So, you know, the people who, who we, we yeah. published through. So thank you for Podbean and thank you for leaving those those wonderful reviews. So, Tim, with that, I also want to just mention that 
we are um, still talking about some of this leading human stuff and this return yeah. to work aspect that we have put together this booklet. It's not, it's more than a booklet. It is a booklet and a workbook combined. And now there's an additional return to work module that's included with this. And it really takes into consideration all of this research that we've learned from um, guests on the show, but our own work as well. And we compiled that together to really help leaders within organizations be able to have a set of information and tools that they can help to have a more human-centric leadership. Where can they get this fantastic book? Where can they get Leading Human, Kurt? Well, any any uh, you know Bookstore? local behavioral <laughs> grooves dot com website. Yeah, there you yeah. go. No, it is. It's it's available. It's available for sale on on our website. So go out there. It's under the products, and you can definitely check it out. There's a free download um, that you can get. Uh, the white paper that talks a little bit about the setting up the stage for why this is important and gives you a little bit of insight into it. So. So please go out, check that out, because I think it'll be fantastic if you are in a leadership position or if you know somebody who is in a leadership position who has to face the challenges of today with everything that's going on from the pandemic, but also just to the social unrest and the changing dynamics of the workforce. All of those factors come into play as things that people need to understand and leading human helps in uh, take that perspective from an employee perspective that they can they can build on that. And as a listener of Behavioral Grooves, we have a special deal for you. You have a special code called Groovers that allows you to get a special discount. So you have to go out to the site in order to use it. Yeah. And just type that in. Yeah. Type Groovers in. G-R-O-O-V-E-R-S. All right. So with that, Tim, I think it is time to ask our Groover listeners to sit back, relax, and pour yourself a fine glass of assembled decisions and enjoy our conversation with Eric Johnson. Eric Johnson, welcome to Behavioral Grooves. Thanks, glad to be here and glad to be with your listeners. We are so happy to have you, and uh, let's get started with a speed round. How about that? Let's just find out which would be your preference, coffee or tea? Tea. Ooh, quick, quick answer. I like that. I love that. All right. Would you rather have dinner with your favorite athlete or favorite musician? Musician. Oh. All right. And, and Tim will, will want to know who that might be. Oh, uh, that would take a little bit longer. Oh, okay. um, <laughs> that, that's fair. That's why these speed rounds are never speedy. <laughs> and let me try to ask a question back. Living or dead? Oh, okay. Well, let, let's, let's, uh, let's go ahead and put a parameter on it. Let's say not living. Let's say, let's say dead. Let's actually put it in said that vein. Eric Dolphy, who I've loved for many years and who happens to uh, just have been an inspiration to me. I don't know if you know him. He was a, a jazz bass clarinetist and saxophonist who actually died on my 10th birthday. Oh, oh my gosh. And amazingly enough, there's a Frank Zappa song called the Eric Dolphy Memorial Barbecue. <gasps> yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Thank you. I, the name was familiar. I'm thinking it sounds like rock, but I'm not sure. Oh yeah. I, I actually recognize it from the Zappa piece. 
Wow. Okay. Well, we're going to have to talk more about that. I love, I love that. <laughs> you, okay. You've now just given Tim a bunch of fodder for the, the end of this session. So <laughs> yeah. Eric, be prepared. All right. Okay. Glad. All right. Speed round question number three. If I get stuck on a crossword puzzle, is it better to push on trying to find the answer or should I walk away, do something else and then come back to it? Absolutely. And I know this from research. It's better to wait. <laughs> so walk away, right? Yes, yeah. Walk away. We can talk about why. Great. We we will we will definitely get to that. Uh, maybe we should get to that right now. Yeah, let's do it now. Let's yeah. yeah. Why why is that? So I think there's an so one thing that's underappreciated when we talk about decision making is how much it depends upon what we recall, our memory, what comes to mind we, when we make decisions. So and one of the reasons that's really important is because there's this thing called interference. Hmm. which is when I think about one thing, it's harder for me to think about its opposite or something else. Um, and so the crossword puzzle is a great example. You know, the example I use with younger people is name a Swedish, the cue might be name a Swedish group that has a palindromic name. And I suspect you guys know it's yeah. ABBA. <laughs> yeah. But for many people, they think and they think of other Swedish groups and nothing comes to mind. If they walk away for a while and come back, then they say, oh, of course, Mamma Mia, it's ABBA. Um, uh-huh. Sorry. Cheap Which humor, is the only way they know ABBA. It's the only way they know it. Yeah. No. And but we like cheap it, jokes, it, by the way. That was good. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, well prepared. Um but in any case, what's clear is that, you know, that, that another example might be if you have a new phone number because you change cell phone providers and you go to your dry cleaner, and at least here in New York, they always ask your phone number as the queue and you can't come up with the new phone number. You're struggling and then they give you your old phone number and you're never going to remember it because that mm-hmm. is interfering with, you know, your recall of the other. You know, we all feel this with tip and tongue, tip of tongue things when you're trying to recall a, a movie star and someone else suggests a name and wow, that wipes out your ability to recall the person you were looking for. Yeah. But over time, you know, that interference decays and you actually end up being able to recall the name or recall the name of the band. So that process is, it turns out to be pretty important for decision making because so much of what we're doing when we make decisions is trying to recall whether something we want or we're something we see in front of us is good or bad. And so therefore the role of interference is huge. That's fantastic. That explanation has made so much sense to me, uh, by the way. I'm really glad that you you shared that because it, it's so familiar, I guess, basically. Um, okay, last speed round question. Are drivers more likely to donate their organs from a car crash if the DMV organ donor sign-up form is an opt-in to be a donor or to opt out to not be a donor? I think the answer is we don't know. Ooh. Ah, great answer. Great answer. So tell us about well, I that. would make the assumption, but now what what help us help Defaults, us go down right? this because there's some really cool research on this. So, right? so that's a trick question in a way, because in the US at least, no one has an opt-in, an opt-out default. Oh, um, so yeah. when you say DMV, I was thinking. You know, I, I believe the same is true in Canada. And I was thinking it's just not, it's an empty category. Okay. And, you know, but many people make that mistake because many people have written about our research, make it think that all decisions everywhere in the world are, you know, based on DMV. And that's just not true. But you're right that we know that people's willingness to be a donor, and this is probably the best known piece of research I've done. Um, with Dan Goldstein, I try and make sure my co-authors get shout outs. Dan Goldstein is that 
you know, in a country that has an opt-out scheme, you're a donor unless you choose not to be, there are many more people registered. And I think that's uncontroversial. Yeah. Yeah. The controversy comes in, and we have lots of correlational data. Those countries also have higher donation rates. But it's something that's really important to realize about, about using behavioral science. There's lots of steps between signing that card or being assigned in some countries as, as a donor and actually being your organs being used. Mm. And you know, a big part of that is families. In most countries, and certainly I think all U.S. states, not quite, but almost all U.S. states, your your family gets asked. And that's a whole nother decision-making process that I don't think we hadn't appreciated when we did our work. And what's true is there's some really clever work that's been done with essentially the scripts that are used. You know, Spain, people argue, is an opt-in or opt-out country, but what they are are a very good country at getting families to say yes. So they actually have a doctor in a white coat with a special room to make the request. And actually in the U.S., some of the states that actually have the best uh, rates of, of donation have very trained specialists who actually have scripts that sound a lot like behavioral science scripts to make the request. So the third thing I'd add to that is not only does that request really important, but we've never done a really good, not us, no one has done a really good randomized control trial to yeah. evaluate that. Yeah, it's all that correlational, right? Exactly. And in countries, you know, so I'm really proud that perhaps inspired by our research and others, countries like Wales, France, the Netherlands have changed, Singapore have changed their defaults. Uh, At the same time, they're doing advertising. There's a lot of publicity. So we really don't know, you know, if you're purely looking for the effect of default, what happens? Have you advocated uh, for uh, changing defaults in the U.S.? I think we certainly have. And I think the reality is that's politically controversial. There have been some here in New York State, there have been some bills introduced, but they never go anywhere. Hmm. And if I was being very pragmatic, I would say I think changing the the family request is really super important. In New York, what they did do is they do what um, my good friends Dick Thaler and Cass Sunstein called mandated choice. Mm. They basically, when you go, literally, it's in the DMV and you're going through the littleized computer form, there's a law that was passed that made you actually have to press a button to go forward saying whether or not you would be a donor. Yeah. So so that forces the issue. It's not a, if, exactly. it, if it's levying it blank, that it, it presupposes one thing or the okay. other. It's saying, choose between these two. So I've gone back and looked at what happened in New York State, um, and it turns out it's only about a 2% increase. In part because it's different than the idealized world, which you might think about, which is where a do- your family doctor asks you or some, or, you know, someone who's respected. Here, I want to get a damn driver's license if I can use that word. <laughs> yeah, 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 <laughs> yeah. Well, you can so, use the word, but but it's it's it right. The the motivation is, uh, or, or the whole purpose of the experience in the United States is just complete the process so that I can move on, so I can actually, you know get whatever I want done in a car. Exactly. And, you know, at least in my experience, the DMV is not the place I want to spend most of my time. (laughs) (laughs) No. Well, and I know you've talked too that this idea that people are impatient and there's a time component in our decision making that leads us to do some things that may 
may or may not be optimal for our own peace, just from our impatient element. Is that part of what is coming into play in this situation too, do you think? So I think in this situation, almost all choices, we're going to choose a way of making a decision. That's mm-hmm. sort of the first decision we have to make. You're in a supermarket, we're deciding what aisles to go through. On a website, we're deciding what buttons to click. And very often, we make those decisions in the first couple of seconds. Uh-huh. And when we do that, we're basic, we basically are facing a decision that's effort now for benefits later. So you know, do I really want to go through all the details of the website to choose whether or not to have cookies, or do I want to book my airline flight? And that, you know, the benefits of that are, and costs are in the future. The the pain of having to read this rather esoteric text um, is now. So people use, you know, they're very impatient. They're actually, the phrase would be present biased, or at least, Mm -hmm. you know, they count the initial costs a lot more when they choose what path to go through. Yeah, so tell us a little bit about your book, Eric, because this is, I think, going to be a really fascinating read for our listeners because you talk about decision making and some of the choice architecture that goes into this. So tell us a little bit about kind of the big picture from from your book here. So, you know, I've been doing research on how you present decisions to people can change their choices for a long time. And at some point, you know, I think Largely, people have, have thought about this as showing that people are inconsistent. And some mm. people use the term irrational. Um, and I don't know, because I don't know in the, some sense, given how busy we are and how limited our capacity are, what irrational means. But I did realize that you can turn this, what seems like a stupid human trick, to borrow a David Letterman <laughs> phrase, um, yeah. into a, a tool, into something actually to help people by presenting people the choice in a way that will be in their longer term benefit, you know, it, you can actually improve the choices. And Sunstein and, and Thaler, I should, and, you know, coined the term choice architecture to talk mm-hmm. about that. So the book is about presenting choices to people. And that's the key thing. And every time you make a choice, you've had, you have a hidden partner, and that's somebody who has actually made a set of decisions about how to present that choice to you, whether it's a website or your boss. They've decided how many options to present. They've decided how to order them. They decide what characteristics or attributes to present, what scales to use. Do I use, you know, five stars? Do I use a number? And I call all these things tools. So basically what the book is about is about how designers, I call them, you could call them choice architects, but I like designers because it's shorter and more appropriate. Mm -hmm. Choose the tools to present choices to us. And actually sort of more importantly, and the other little cute insight is we are all designers we present choices to everyone around us so if you are a parent you have you're trying to get your kid out to school in the morning you're setting out clothes you're making exactly the same decisions so whether it's a parent or whether it's you as a parent or you as a boss or your firm we're all designers and so it's really important to have a systematic view of what those tools are I love the way you you kind of almost present this idea that the designers and the choosers are almost co-conspirators in the in this process, like they're in it together. Ideally, that would be the case. Now, I'm, <laughs> yeah, okay. I, 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 I'm an optimist, so that that's the world I, I talk about in the book. But I also know there are people who use the tools of choice architecture um, for to encourage decisions that may be in their best interest and not of the chooser, the other person, the person who's actually making the decision. Yeah, so you mentioned Thaler and Sunstein already, and they've obviously been doing a lot of 
recent work on sludge and different pieces. So is that similar in nature to what uh, they've described when they're talking about sludge? They they do talk about sludge, and it's actually you know very similar. I, they have a slightly more specific definition, okay, uh, which emphasizes increasing the effort, which I think is very consistent with with what I'm saying. But there are lots of things that I think count as should we say evil choice architecture that <laughs> don't involve you know don't involve necessarily making things much harder or doing in subtle ways. And in computer science, there's actually a large literature that I've been reading. It's actually quite fun because they call it dark patterns. Ah, oh, wow. Which sounds like the name of a, uh, since we're talking about music occasion, sounds like the name of a goth band, I think. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> yes, definitely. <laughs> Ooh, I, might have to, I might have to go in and, and see if that's taken. There we yes, go. Can, uh, let me know. Um, but long <laughs> story short, you know, they, I mean, I don't know if you've gotten the latest in cookie prompts. Uh, yes. they say, and of course, they apply. They happen right at the beginning. They're at the bottom of the screen, so they're hard to see. And they basically are a function, I think, of both European and now California laws. And it turns out in the U.S., if California does something, it becomes almost a national uh, mandate in the U.S. because people don't want to do two websites, one for California and one for not California. Right. So, And what they do is they basically, um, if you continue to use this website, uh, you're consenting for us to do X, Y, and Z. And then there's usually a, you either go and use the website, or there's a big, typically large red X to make that question disappear. Um, now, imagine a world where we flip that and just said, yes, no. Yeah. Yes, I want you to, do, to put cookies on the machine. No, I don't. There are actually some computer scientists and they get about a 20%, 26% difference in people's responses based on whether that yes, no, or just, that X is there. Um, so that's a case where, you know, essentially the designer wants one outcome. I'm not going to take a position about whether cookies are good or bad, but I will say, I think the choices you make when you don't see a no button there explicitly are going to be different. Yeah. I, I think that that's, um, that is fascinating when that I, that I've seen that recently. And it's also, uh, I've seen on some European sites sort of this level of complexity where uh, if you'd like to customize your cookies or there's sort of an option to get in and tailor this for you, it looks complicated and, uh, it, you know, sort of instantly fatiguing. It's like, well, I don't want to go through all that because I really don't understand all the ramifications anyway. I, I, exactly. And it turns out if, you do, if you're um, obsessed with this area like I am you, and you look at the options, one of them is typically saying, no, I don't want any cookies. By putting three or four other kinds of choices there, I think they're basically making that one harder to find. And again, in terms of this issue of people making immediate decisions of what path to use, that makes it going down the, the path of evaluating whether I want cookies seems much more effortful. Yeah. So we've got uh, this, these uh, these designers uh, uh, partaking in a process to create a choice architecture for us. And we've got choosers who are sort of subject to the designer's creation when it comes to the choices that we're going to make. To what degree does context play in this choosing experience? So help me understand what you mean by context. I just want to make sure I, I, I understand. Sort of in the in the uh, let's let's say for the cookies like the the kind of website that I'm on or the or the, my intentions at the moment or am I in a rush or uh, all the environmental factors that might be influencing me at that point is that does that help that does help and I mean I think you bring up what will turn out to be a very good 
an important point if you're understanding designing websites, which is the effects you're going to have will depend upon the application or, as you mm. put it, the context. So one of the things that you know I have to say is that defaults are pretty powerful. Uh, friends of mine at a financial services company say, uh, when we look at interventions, there's defaults and then everything else. But, <laughs> oh, wow. Which, which is lovely. I love it when they say that. <laughs> but the reality is that, you know, in organ donation, for uh, this is for opting in versus opting out to agree to be a donor, not actually being a donor. Mm -hmm. um, you know, we get results that are typically 40, 60 percent. That's huge. And I think people often take the view that, well, that's going to happen. If I'm going to increase my sales by 60%, all I have to do is change the default. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not that simple. So, you know, as someone who's a designer, you're going to want to look at different contexts and try and understand how big the effects are. So we actually went and collected every study we could find that had changed defaults to try and see uh, what happened. Um, and what we found was actually that Defaults are very powerful, but they also are very variable. You get mm. some studies where you get very little effect and you get other studies. I think the record is like a 90% versus 5% difference uh, when people are choosing um, their electricity provider. So mm. in lots of Europe, you get a choice in, in the U.S. as well, um, whether you're going to have a sustainable uh, electricity provider or one that's using you know, non-sustainable uh, coal and other things. And there is some very nice randomized control trial studies done in in Switzerland and Germany that show huge effects. And they're very, I'm, I'm sure they're right because they have huge samples. You have 40,000 people in each cell. But what's interesting, you have other studies, which are you know websites where they make the pre-check very small and those have much smaller effects. So an important point, I think, if you're actually trying to take advantage of what we now know about uh, designing sites is to say, what exactly is the process that's going on and to understand that. So defaults are powerful. We find that they're average somewhere, depending upon how you look at about 30% increase. And they're also cheap because, of course, to change the default on a website is literally changing, you know, one line of HTML code. Even I could do that. <laughs> literally, the code says, you know, default equals and you name what the default should be. But it's not always going to give you a huge increase. It will give you a sizable increase most of the time. And then, you know, I we think a lot about what are the things that make that effect larger or smaller. Yeah. So what are some of those moderating effects? What what are those aspects that increase or decrease the impact that that has? So one th way of making sure defaults have less effect is to ask the question multiple times. <laughs> So one of the things that's interesting about the cookies is you could reset the cookie and then ask me, do you want to change it back the other way? We actually think about lots of ways defaults work. One is basically ease. If you make it hard to change the default, the default effect will, it will be stronger. Yeah. Another was an endorsement. If you trust the person who's setting the default, mm -hmm. it's likely to be larger. The other is defaults work a little bit by giving you a little bit of an endowment effect. That is, you mm. feel like you own that. So to go back to organ donation, you know, I might be thinking first about everything that's good about being a donor, that, you know, I'm going to save somebody's life, et cetera, et cetera. Then if interference exists, it's really hard for me to think about what the disadvantages are. So if we go ah. back to the role of memory, there's actually a fact that defaults can change the order in which I consider the options. And that's where memory becomes important. Uh, it actually will change the amount, the, the amount I think about that. So we have 
tried to look at that, and all three processes apply. And what happens is when all three processes go in the same direction, you get a bigger default effect. When it's only one or two, the default effect is smaller. Is there anything, you talked about the the impact that it had on the power companies in, in some of the European countries. And in thinking about that, and this is me just making a wild guess here because I have no clue on that, but I would see, it would, it would feel like that is a ambiguous situation. I may not know power company A from power company B from power company C. So my natural inclination is just to go with what's going on. Is there elements where it's, it's a novel situation or ambiguous, or I don't have a preference? Does that have an impact from your perspective? Have you done any research on that or seen any research? So the way I would think about that is, is actually that it's a case where my preferences are really assembled. Mm-hmm. I don't go walking around thinking every day I want green power. So, yeah. I mean, someone might not, many people won't, or I want, I want gray power. It's like, I want to save money because green power is typically more expensive and I want to save the earth. And what the default does is because they don't have a clear preference, I have lots of things I know, the default will have a bigger effect. Mm. And largely because, you know, I'm not just retrieving my preference, I'm actually trying to assemble one. Uh, so I think I put it as basically one of those domains, and there are a surprising number of domains where we know lots. It's not just a lack of knowledge, just we haven't integrated them into a clear picture. Which leads me to another question, which is when we're thinking about this, right, I think some of the work that you've done, particularly early on, is kind of, it it shows a difference in how we make decisions and how we make choices in the real world versus the way that classical economists would predict that we make choices. And so can you uh, expand upon that for us a little bit? And is is that true? Is there a difference in how we make it versus how a classical economist would predict how we do that? Sure, there's a long list, and you know, many people think that behavioral economics has basically become lots of economics. Mm-hmm. Um, but one of the places where I think we're just starting to see economists adopt some of these ideas is in this notion of preferences are assembled. Uh, a phrase uh, that's used in the academic literature is they're constructed. But I changed that because it sounds like constructed, like I'm making things up out of whole cloth. Assembled, you know, I like that phrase because you have many things you could think about and it's, it's you're picking some subset of those. And so that's a place where economists still believe I have a preference for many things, whereas I think we're actually just trying to predict um, what will make us happier. If you sit down at a dinner, my problem is not, you know, what's the price of this and is it worth it? My problem is, would I really enjoy this entree, really enjoy the souffle or what will I like? And, you know, it's it's that's the process that I think is still very much more part of the way psychologists and behavioral scientists, other than economists, think about choice. I love that. That That's a great example. Could you just expand on that for just a minute? This uh, let's let's take the the experience of sitting down at the restaurant. How does the assembled decision and I, I do love your terminology uh, on this, by the way, because I think it really is sort of more appropriate. But could you could you just uh, use this example of uh, now I'm sitting down at a restaurant, I'm going to order something. How does uh, the assembled decision uh, come together? So it, it's a great, and I'll, I'll use an example um, from a, an old study that I, I love, which is imagine you were in a hamburger joint. So I was, we were through souffles and we were thinking something a little bit different, but okay, st- okay. studies ab- about hamburgers. And they were giving people either uh, 
ground beef that was 25% fat <laughs> or 75% lean. Oh, <laughs> okay. And you notice those are exactly the same thing. But notice the 25% fat, you, you sort of see the, the grease coming out of the burger and dripping onto your clothes and a real mess. And you think about your arteries, 75% lean, you're thinking muscle mass. Um, you're thinking something very different. And when it comes to things like, you know, hamburger, we have lots of preferences. In fact, there's a, a website that asks people, what are the first three things that come to mind for various words? And for hamburger, you see all sorts of things, many of them awful, many of them good. But what subset of that comes to mind, I think, is determined in part by that label. And, you know, so I think a really important part of uh, choice architecture is attributes and other things have labels. We've looked at studies where we ask people how long they will live, saying what year will you die by versus what year will you live to? Those are the same question, but we know we ask people literally to type aloud, to actually enter on the keyboard what they're thinking about. And they think about different things. And those different things result in really different estimates of how long they'll live. So we find people who will, in the die-by frame, say on the average 75, and the live-to frame, they say 84. And they're just, they're literally thinking about different parts of what they know about longevity. And to your point, it's really something that they don't think about every day. So they don't have a clearly assembled prediction there. And in that last example, has an impact, right? And if you're thinking about when people take their social security, you know, opt in to start taking social security, I think that's part of what you were, some of the research that you were looking at. Is that correct? And can you expand yeah. on that if that's true? Yeah. So in many, one of the most important and obscure financial decisions people make is when to start claiming social security. You can start claiming at 62 and you, a big chunk, usually about 30 to 40% of Americans do. Now, this doesn't necessarily have to do with retiring. It's just when you start getting the checks. Now, what's interesting is that you get about an 8% increase year over year uh, by waiting in the amount of money you get. So it's actually important to figure out, you know, do I want to wait a year? Now, for those people who already have some money in savings, it's unlikely, with the exception of the current stock market, which is sort of unusual, you're going to make 8% risk-free year over yeah. year. And you should be spending your money and then letting Social Security get bigger and bigger. And even in the current environment, for most people facing retirement now, I know someone's going to uh, be thinking about, you know, will, will it be solvent? That's going to happen down the road. You will probably not have to face that problem. So if that's true, you should be waiting. Now, that's actually kind of interesting because for most people who live longer, they should be waiting. But I also uh, think a lot about somebody who's 62 can't find another job, uh, really wants to enjoy life now. And so this actually raises another issue about choice architecture, which is one size doesn't fit everybody. So mm. you could think about, I should default people to, to, eight, to 79. Uh, but you know, there's going to be somebody who's going to be hurt by that default. Somebody who is going to retire, want to retire at 62, may not live that long. Uh, you know, I, I talk about two uncles I have, one who's not very exciting, but he's going to live forever. And he should wait. <laughs> the, the other uncle, who is actually someone who's a lot more fun, but you know, not likely to be around, um, and they oh. should make different decisions. Yeah, which I think is an it brings up a really important part is that you know applying these principles across the board. And Tim and I have talked about this on other episodes. Is 
is to your point, it's not a one size fits all, but there's also an ethical consideration in being that designer. We have to think about that. And yes, you may prefer a certain outcome, but you also have to understand how that impacts others and the ramifications that has across the board, long-term, variety of different stakeholders, all of those factors that come into play, which makes this a little bit harder than just an easy, oh, well, let's default people to you know, a later time to get their social security payments as you just kind of identified, so. Yeah, we've had it easy in thinking about some things like savings, accumulation, as people, economists say, most people don't accumulate enough. So defaulting them into a retirement plan, you know, is not gonna hurt many people and help a lot. But decumulation isn't so simple. You know, retirement, how do you spend down your money? And, you know, one of the things that I've thought a lot about is how you get that, solve that problem. And one thing, you know, that I think is important is, you know, we think about defaults as being one size fits all, but there's also could be smart defaults. That is a default that's customized for you. So, for example, if somebody knows, you know, there are longevity calculators, nobody enjoys filling them out. But you could imagine that a provider of or the government could sort of say, you know, for you, the best default would be 63. For somebody else, the best default is 70. So this notion of smart defaults, particularly if you think about firms that know a lot about you know, their customers, yeah. is a very powerful one. Is anybody doing this right now? Are, are you aware of any companies that are using smart defaults? There, There is actually one example that people don't think of as smart default, but it is. And I'll stay with investing for just another second. The re default retirement plan in most companies is a target date fund. Mm. That's a fund that actually um, is customized to the age, you, your age, or at least when you think you'll retire. And, you know, the standard advice is actually, you know, you should invest higher risk early on and lower risk later on. And the reality is that most people actually don't do that rebalancing. So what these funds do is, given your age, give you the best what's called glide path change from stocks to bonds or stocks to cash as you get older and they do it automatically and all they need to do to to do that is know how old you are i love that yes and i've, I've you know have looked at those and in, in our own kind of world so those are fantastic ways of being able to really put a picture around what a smart default is Eric, you've done a fair amount of work on query theory. Can you describe what that is for us and the impacts on how that impacts the way that we make decisions and the things that we choose? So we've been sort of bouncing around it because we've gotten one of the most important concepts in our discussion, which is this notion of interference. And a second part of it is the notion that what you think about first gets more recall from memory. Um, so let's go back to the ground beef example. You know, there, if it's, if it's, 25% fat ground beef, I think about, oh, what's what's bad about ground beef first? As opposed to the other frame, I'd think about what's good about ground beef. We've done this in lots of places. Uh, another example is this live save where people think first about what are the reasons they're going to live longer. Then interference, they'd use another query, which is what are the reasons I'm going to die sooner. And the frame of the question changes the order of those two queries. And as a result, people think about different things as if they're thinking about different hamburgers or different people, and they are ask, answering what should be the same question. So it turns out this is actually a, a pretty important theory about how preferences are assembled. 
that leads me to a topical issue about vaccinations. There's been some recent work on choice architecture and posing uh, issues to, uh, to people who are not vaccinated. Could you could you share some of your insights and thoughts about that? Yeah, it's interesting because it, it, we've I've played a little bit with using choice architecture. And it makes a difference in what are called contact tracing apps. You know, this is the app you'd put on your phone. It would tell you whether you're exposed. Uh, the problem with contact tracing apps is that basically they have very low adoption rates, almost too low to make a difference. I think in the UK they made some difference, but it turns out choice architecture could make a big difference in our studies, which we think are pretty realistic. Uh, we could get, we could get huge increases, you know, like 30 or 40% by not changing their fault, but by changing other parts of the phrasing. But the most important work, I think, is actually one where they've used defaults as appointments. So one Swedish region, Uppsala, actually did 70% of their 16 to 17-year-old age group, which you know has not been totally enamored with doing the vaccine. Uh, (laughs) They were given the appointment by default. That is, they were said, you have an appointment, you can change it or cancel it, but by 2 o'clock next Tuesday, you're going to, uh, you have an appointment to get the vaccine. In other regions in Sweden, the same age group had 11 to 15%. It's not an RCT, but it certainly suspects that it's worth trying. And notice, I think, query theory or simple preferences. Even if something is controversial as, you know, whether I should get a vaccine, a lot of people for whom that's still an assembled preference. You know, they've heard this, they've heard that, they've heard I won't go into that, but they've heard lots of stuff. And, you know, when the default is not getting the vaccine, you're always going to think about, you know, why should I get the vaccine first? But if you're faced, oh, on Tuesday, I can get the vaccine, you're making a very different decision. And that's actually also been done in Holland, where 85% of the 16 to 24-year-olds have, have been vaccinated. In Wales, it's the most successful of all the campaigns in the UK. So it's a good example, of I think, of how, you know, giving something the status, the status of the status quo changes the way people will assemble their preferences. It's not going to change a, a rabid anti-vaxxer, you know, but it will actually have an effect on you know a fair number of people. I think more people, it's still an assembled preference than you would guess. Yeah, which is a really interesting piece of this, right? It's not you're not changing people's viewpoints when they're strongly held, but for the all the other in the vast middle of this, those are some some tools that could be used to make sure, not to make sure, but to to kind of. Uh, nudge, I'll use the Taylor's piece there to to move you in that in that right direction. I it's it's really fascinating to see that like with everything that's been going on with the pandemic, how much behavioral science has been, you know, kind of looked at and and people have been doing a lot of research. And yet you kind of see that it there it hasn't necessarily changed the trajectory of kind of how we've accepted the vaccines or even the belief in some of these different pieces. And so I think there's, for me, and I'm, I'm pontificating here, I apologize for that, Eric, but it's this idea that we still have a lot of work to do within within behavioral science to, to figure things out, to be, better understand the, the reasons why we do different things. And with that, I was just thinking, like, what is the research? What what research would you like to do coming up? What so looking forward? What what's the area or topic that you uh, is it further? You know, delving into the areas of a choice architecture and choosing and various different pieces, or is it another area that you would really like to get into? 
I've often said I've only had two or three interests in my entire research career. They just get recycled. <laughs> um, so, but there, there are different places. I mean, I'm, I'm fascinated by this notion of dark patterns yeah. Because, yeah. because I think they not only are important from policy reasons, but they also show you something about how people make choices that isn't part of the standard vocabulary yet. Making a button red for a policy decision shouldn't work, but it does. So that's, mm-hmm. you know, that that's one thing in the short term I'm wor- wor- going to be working. I'm still fascinated with uh, consumer financial decision making. I think we're, you know, there's certainly some good players who are doing good things there. Uh, and I think the whole notion that, you know, people are at a loss to make good decisions and need help is a really important future world that I think hopefully we'll be bringing about relatively soon. So are there any collaborators that you haven't worked with? I mean, you've worked with a lot of people over the years, but is there anybody that you haven't collaborated with that you would really like to? No, that's a very good question. You know, the the people I find find the most interesting. So I basically have two sets of collaborators, great postdocs and graduate students. And, you know, that, that's just wonderful because they teach me a lot. Yeah. They often know things and, uh, that's, and, you know, I've been lucky, but often I was the young investigator for lots of those people I've worked with, not all of them. So I, there are people, and I don't want to embarrass anyone by not naming them. <laughs> fair enough. <laughs> That's fair. okay. This isn't... That's fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Because there are a lot more people I won't name than name. <laughs> okay. <laughs> uh, that, that, that's fair. I, 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 we've got, you know, six more pages of questions, but I have to find out uh, uh, this musical thing kind of came up with the idea of uh, in, in the speed round about Eric Delphi. Like this is just, uh, I'm really curious. Are you a j- big jazz guy? Are you a super jazz aficionado? I, I've always been schizophrenic, obviously in the research <laughs> interests. And, and that's because I've always been very, very interested in basic fundamental processes like query theory and also in applications like organ donation. And, you know, in music, I sort of have been off the, the beaten track, but still schizophrenic. My roots, I actually played um, string bass, stand-up bass, and the wow. folk and, and string band scene in both New Jersey and Pittsburgh. I actually did a lot of that to get my to pay my way, or at least to put a little extra money on the table when I was in an undergraduate and graduate school. So that has been a, a very important part of my life. And cool. another part is that the other schizophrenia was, you know, I very much like jazz, some of it more avant-garde. But it, it's just great and something I listen to a lot. So is the is the string band stuff? Is that more uh, like Americana kind of uh, old time, or what? What's the what's or, or is it more jazz leaning? Yeah, my my favorite was. I mean, uh, the answer was yes. After all, I wanted to make some money, so we do lots of things. <laughs> right, um, right. But my favorite was playing in in sort of swing gypsy. Uh, gypsy jazz, Django Reinhardt oh, kind of music. Oh yeah, um, yeah. and that is that was hot always, club. You know, yeah, hot club. That was always sort of my favorite, and also the um, David Grisman dog music. Sort of sometimes, uh, you know, people know Jerry Garcia's collaborations, that kind of thing. Jazz, jazzy bluegrass. Um, uh, so that was always the stuff that would make me particularly happy. Wow. Wow. That, uh, that's, that is, that is kind of schizophrenic. I, I, could, I couldn't agree more. If you had to, let's say you, you find yourself stranded on a desert island for a year, what three artists' repertoire would you take with you? Oh, and that's probably changed over time. Um, sure. It's interesting because I would, um, 
<laughs> one thing I might I might say is someone who has a big box set, so I can listen to very different things. <laughs> yeah, it's kind of that's kind of cheating, by the way. <laughs> I know, I know, you know, but you know, may, maybe the collected works of, of Beethoven might be one. <laughs> yeah, I, I I tend to flip music tastes uh, quite a bit. Ah, oh, that's a very good question. Um, you know, I. I Beethoven's not and, a bad choice, by the way. That's a great a box set of Beethoven would be a great place to start. Yeah. And I, I, I'm also tempted to think about representations of my other interests. So you know, there are I do have a, a box set of ten of Django's um, recordings, but I think the sound quality might drive me mad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's let's make sure that you have sort of a lo-fi player so that yeah, <laughs> so that's you right. can't really tell the difference. That's right. Um, and I, I don't know, I've been listening a lot to contemporary classical music lately. And so this is a name you might not know, but uh, there's a woman named Carolyn Shaw who uh, was the youngest person ever to win a Pulitzer. And I'm involved here at Columbia with Miller Theater, which does a very good uh, set of, uh, uh, well, has, and now online, done a very good. And, and so she, her newest album with So Percussion is called Let the Soil Play It's Simple Part. It's her with a percussion ensemble. And it's just amazing. Oh, wow. Another, uh, just briefly, friend of mine is uh, George Lewis, who's on the faculty here at Columbia, who started out as a, as a trombonist with uh, the AACM. That's the Association for the Advancement of Creative Music. And that's the home of some of the great avant-garde jazz bands like um, particularly the Art Ensemble of Chicago. And he's an innovator in electronic music. Um, and he just did a gig on at the proms at Royal Albert Hall. Oh, it, wow. You know, so that, that it, it, as I said, very broad, very big ear, very wide ears. Uh, yeah. I've listened to lots of things. Um, and the last thing I'll sort of say is I've played with some of the people I've played with, played with Bruce Springsteen. So my Jersey roots are recognized too. Okay. You, we can't just, you can't just like throw that. Like some of the people I play with, play with, play with Springsteen and just leave it. (laughs) Give us, you know, are are you, is Max Weinberg in your band? (laughs) No, but back in, back in the day, um, when I was uh, undergraduate Rutgers and playing, uh, Bruce would, would show up and jam with, um, some of the people who were very popular, what we would now call jam band um, kinds of bands. And one of them was a guitarist who ended up in a band that I played with for quite some time. There's another uh, player who legend has was offered to play with Bruce in E Street, but decided to finish his English PhD. I won't mention his name because I think uh, it might be... uh, uh, it, it might uh, be something he doesn't want to be known for, um, but <laughs> yeah. you know there, there there is that connection from from having been part of a very active music scene. Yeah, I, I think that, you know that we're in Minneapolis, and I think there's that element of if you're in the music scene, you get connected to others within there, and there's that six degree of separation that gets really truncated within those smaller regional areas. So you could see that happen. One last question on music, Eric: Is do you listen to music while you work? And if so, is it does it need to be a specific kind? It almost always has to be instrumental. I find okay. if I listen, I listen to that, and it sort of depends upon the stage of composition. Okay. If, it's, if if I'm proofing, well, actually, if I'm reading out loud, it has to be very background. Yeah. Um, but I love I love having music. I mean, it, it's essential. I have, you know, where in all my offices, I have you know fairly nice music and nowadays of course everything is digitized so i can have the same music in all the places 
Well, one of your colleagues at Columbia, Melanie Brooks, is uh, is, is asking this question, uh, and we're uh, she's studying it formally. We're providing some anecdotes to her because we talk to so many people about this uh, and ask this question: Do you listen to music while you work? And and so she is she's kind of assembling a, a, a more uh, course a research-based story about this but uh but the instrumental thing comes up a lot uh for people who are willing to listen i happen to be one of those people who will not listen to music while they work i really demand uh as much silence as possible uh kurt is is well kurt you explain your own preferences you've got you know i I, I, to to your point i can listen to music in certain types of work and in others it's, it's more difficult and typically you know, it is it is those aspects where it doesn't necessarily have to be instrumental, but it, it can't be something that I'm singing along with. That's for sure. So, yeah, right. yeah. yeah, you know, it's great. Melody's incredibly creative, so I'm, I'm, I don't know about that project, but I should and I will soon. Thank you. <laughs> Little did I know I had to go on a podcast to find out what my colleague down the hall is doing. <laughs> That's why we do it, right? That's it. Yeah, there we go. Stay connected, Eric. Thank you so very much for being a guest on Behavioral Grooves today. It's been a real pleasure. I have enjoyed it immensely, and I hope your listeners have uh, learned something. I am sure they have, so thank you again. Welcome to our grooving session where Tim and I groove on what we learned from our discussion with Eric, have a free-flowing conversation, and talk about whatever else comes into our disassembled brains, Mr. Mr. Houlihan. We have some disassembled brains, you and I. Dis- oh, God. I you know what? You're you're stating the obvious. <laughs> <laughs> I have I think I've been disassembled my whole life. Yeah. Well, we can, you know, we are disassembled and and um I love this concept that Eric brings up about assembled decisions. It just it 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 struck me as this idea that should be common knowledge. And yet I don't think this is how we think. This isn't how we've, we've, we've looked at this in the past, at least I haven't. So for me, this idea is, yeah, we don't have those clear preferences in advance. It's they, they're made in the moment from the things that we assemble from what has pre, you know, we've just seen before to the way that it's presented to the, the emotional state that we're in. So our preferences are constantly to a certain degree in flux and that just makes a whole lot more sense to me as to why sometimes i like ice cream and then other times i love ice cream you know i mean it just makes that that change they're different you know so (laughs) well i i love this because for me it congealed a couple of really important ideas that i've been sitting on for years like itamar simonson and ron kivitz in 2000 2001 wrote about how our preferences are labile they're flexible mm-hmm. and our preferences change and and you and i have talked incessantly about how context matters yes. so it's it's not that this idea of assembled decisions wasn't just waiting to happen cuz it was always right there on the edge but as soon as eric said Oh, we assemble our decisions. We assemble our preferences at the moment that we're making a decision. It's like, ah, big, bright light. That's it. That we're putting this stuff together in the moment. And I think that that's just really, really cool. Yeah. I mean, you think about the impact that that has on, as an organ, if you're an organization, if you're a leader within an organization and you're thinking about how your employees are behaving or how your consumers are behaving, 
the fact that the these clear preferences and and to that degree there are probably are elements where we do have clear preferences this over that and yeah, some moral yeah. foundation difference but there's a lot of our decisions where that preference is assembled in the moment and that's what i loved when he talked about how defaults work right this idea that defaults work because we don't have a clear preference and that now with the default that becomes part of that assembled decision making process and it takes on a bigger weight that you yes you just go with the default so it does i I also wanted to mention i'm working with a client right now that is trying to help consumers make healthier choices when they decide to buy that they want to indulge in a snack and so healthy snacks Mm. a healthy Mm. snack like ice cream yeah Well, uh, uh, the the term is permissible indulgence, so it would have to be a, some kind of ice cream that had a healthy factor about it. No, and like for breakfast. That's <laughs> breakfast ice cream, I call that. That's my healthy because it's a dairy product for breakfast, right? <laughs> or, or it could be my lunch ice cream. That's healthy, too, because, you know, you need that. Sure. Dinner, dinner, dessert, ice cream. I can understand that might not be there. So, yeah. Oh my god. <laughs> so we were talking about a client with a with a challenge, helping consumers make this good decision. And when Eric talked about the assembled decision and assembling our preferences, it's not that people don't want to eat healthy. They do. You know, um, they, people want to eat healthy. They want to ch- make good choices. But at the moment that they're making those decisions, that's when these preferences need to be assembled in a way. And I think that this is a really interesting problem in the real world to look at from the perspective of assembling the preference, of using cues um, and priming, right, that are going to encourage that consumer in that moment uh, on in the retail environment to make a choice for, you know, toward the, uh, the, the healthier snack. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's the conversation that he talked about, about green power, right? This idea that green power, you know, yes, I want that, but then it comes down to choosing it. There's costs involved and all these other factors that are coming in. So there's multiple inputs. And so what gets assembled and how it gets assembled and the, the order within, with it, that it gets assembled in have a big impact on the decisions that I make. And so as you're talking about working with your client and thinking through this, the decision-making process about how the packaging looks, about the messaging that comes in, about where it's placed in the the grocery store or convenience store or online or whatever that is, all of those factors have to be taken into account. And any one piece of that fits within the larger context, of course, as we always talk about, but yeah. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about defaults for, for just a minute, if if you will. I'm, I'm, this is are not, you saying that I'm at fault? What are you saying? Are you talking about uh, my faults? Is that what you said? You're at default. Oh, <laughs> you're the. <laughs> it's, it's default. It's, it's it's your default, man. Yeah. It's your default. Yeah. yeah. Okay. No. Uh, are you going to adopt a Tony Soprano kind of? Yeah. Default. <laughs> but I I loved. You know, we talked about organ donation, which is one of my favorite studies. You know, that with Dan Goldstein. That was. That was a, a kind of a life changer for me. We talked about savings and dark the dark patterns thing. How about that? Dark patterns where the cookies don't give you an option. You all you can do is say accept. That's evil. That's 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 evil sludge. That's the stuff that Cass Sunstein talks about. This whole world of you know making people adding that friction in and doing all those things. Yeah, but but to that that 
what you're talking about, right? Defaults. If you think about what are some of the other places where defaults have kind of come in and we don't even necessarily recognize them anymore. And I know like they're already there. Well, well, we've talked about this, right? This, this idea that like when McDonald's meals move to, you know, uh, meals as opposed to like, I have to order the, the hamburger and the fries and the shake. No, it's just a number one. It's a number two. It's a number three. Those are defaults. And so now you, it's hard to go in and just order a sandwich, right? A, a burger, because that's, you know, the default. Why, why I mean, you, the, the menu is placed such that, hey, those are the prominent pieces in there. So, yeah, yeah, absolutely. There's also the, uh, that, the, the question that you talked about, uh, we talked about age, but, but uh, another thing that I'm seeing a lot of in restaurants is the, would you like to tip 15, 18 or 20%? Now this, these are US tip rates, right? Yes. I mean, this doesn't apply to the rest of the world because workers are paid incredibly poorly here in the United States. So the tips have to make up a bigger percentage. Um, now I'm just getting back off my high horse to return to the story, but the 15, 18, 20% is pre set up so that all you have to do is sort of check one. And if it's electronic, you just press the button and, and, and you, everything is totaled and you pay uh, in a way that, so it's really reduced a lot of friction. And from, uh, from some early research, I read that it, it's increased the, the general value of tips. Yeah. Well, particularly when you look at the, the defaults that they choose. So you talked about 10, 18 and 20, which has been a standard kind of typical, when we think about tipping in America, again, that 15% is good, 20% is you know outstanding service, and 18 is somewhere in between, has been kind of a rule of thumb for many, many years. What I've seen with some of these, though, is that they, they go, it's a 20, 22%, 25% tip. Oh, wow. Yeah, and so ramping it up. And, and like, it's interesting because I, I think I've seen research, and don't quote me on this, but I think I've seen research that actually when they do that, the tips in general get higher. Whereas I thought, you know, I've actually had that and it is backfired on me where I said, I'm not giving a tip because you have just anchored in on this 20, 25%. No, no. So so you're willing to, you're willing to blame the server for working at an institution. This was in a taxi cab. Yeah. That was in a taxi cab and and different pieces. And I think I, I modified it and I went and I gave it a 10% (laughs) or something, you know, when you can get to go in and, and. And choose other ways, but yeah, those are those are important decisions that, as a designer, right? And we're all designers, as he says. How are yep. we designing these things, and what are the defaults that we're using? Well, and we talked with Tim Kachuriak, right, about nonprofits and the website yeah. design for those, and again about how they can make the default for your donation at whatever, you know, level that is. And by, they have to make a really, you know, good decision on what those defaults are to maximize those donations, but still make sure that it's fair and and everything else. So. Yeah. And in that case, I think I remember that the numbers were like only 20 or 25% of people that get to the donation page actually complete the donation transaction. So having a default is an important way of reducing friction and making it easy for people to complete that that activity. Yeah. So the other piece I thought from Eric's conversation that was really fascinating to me was the moderating effects on defaults. And so understanding yeah. Yeah. what are those things that 
impact how effective a default is. In other words, when you really want people to think about a decision before they make it, what do you have to do or what or or not think about it, right? You know, what are those how, right. how do you moderate the 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 effects on those defaults? So he yeah, he went through those he went through those those four things pretty quickly. And and I'm glad you brought that up, Kurt, because I thought like the first one that he talked about was if you ask a multi a question multiple times that it weakens the effect of the default. So, so if you say, you know, uh, do you want to, do you want to have cookies? And you, you say no and says, are you sure? You know, if there was just a second, are you sure it would, it would weaken the, the default of just having cookies, for instance. Mm -hmm. And I thought that was really cool. Oh, and of course the, then the converse is true, right? So that the opposite of that is if you want to make the default stronger, then you only ask once. Right, mm. that you actually only kind of put it out there in in one time, then the default becomes a stronger uh, effect. Yeah, and I mean that makes sense, right? Because then you have you don't have that option to think about it again, right? You've made right. the decision; right. the decision is there. You don't rethink that decision over, which may get you thinking about it from a different perspective. Again, you've reassembled that decision now in a different way. Are you sure? Well, are you sure? Just change the way that I thought about that. Am I sure about that cookie? Well, now that you asked that, no, maybe I'm not. Yeah, you know? exactly. No. It, yeah, exactly. The second one I, uh, that he talked about was to make it easy to change the default after you've already made the decision. Mm. So allow for someone to say to easily come back and say, "Wait a minute, wait a minute." The whole cookie thing. I I, I want to change my mind on that. If you if you actually make it easier, it does weaken the effect of the of the default. Again makes perfect sense, right? When you think about it, yeah. if I have to jump through hurdles after I've made a decision to change it back, it's status quo bias already. I mean, that happens pretty right. immediately. So you're you're decreasing the friction that is available for people and that makes it easier to go back on those defaults. Yeah. Yeah. The other one, you know, that I liked is that a default set by someone you don't know or don't trust is weaker, which was oh, interesting. Yeah. Yeah. You know, because you think about how things are designed, this idea that most of the times that we we run into defaults, maybe not most of the time, but when we think about defaults, we think about those that are designed into products or things that are part of our, our life that is outside of our immediate family or boss or something like that. And those tend to be weaker because we don't know them and, or maybe we don't trust yeah. them versus... Right. If it's you're working with your kids and you give them a default, right? <laughs> you know, yeah. it's pretty it's stronger. How, how, or if, it, it if we're working together and and we have a something that's going on and you make a say, Kurt, here is your choice. And I go, Oh, okay. This is, you know, we're gonna default to <laughs> so you making trust, this. Are you saying you yeah, you do like, trust me? Yeah, we're gonna have we're <laughs> the default is that our grooving sessions are going to be 10 minutes, Kurt, and you're gonna have to shut up more. And I'm gonna just uh, I know that's the default that you want to put in there. So there you go. That, but it would it would never hold. But yeah. yeah, so so and and I wonder if that does work with brands, like with brands that we trust or believe in. I'm sure it would does. we be more likely to go along with you know, with a, with a brand that is setting up, uh, that is sort of had a, have a default function, if we know it and trust it and believe in it, yeah. versus a brand that we don't care about. Now, Eric didn't talk about that specifically, but I think it's an interesting question. I like that. Yeah, and then last, the last of those four things is interference in the decision making makes that default weaker, right? So, uh -huh. 
So yeah, you you have some interference, you add some element into it, it it just makes it more difficult and thus weaker. Yeah. And with with less with less interference, then we get the endowment effect mm-hmm. that that we end up owning it basically, and it's going to make it more difficult to change. So there's kind of I, I love that each of these sort of has a both both end. Right. Yeah. And and think about this. This isn't these aren't solitary standalone. They are cumulative, and so that you can either weaken the default by having multitude of these aspects. Right. Make it easier to opt out. Ask people multiple times you know, have it come from a source that isn't known or trusted or, you know, have some interference that's that weakens that default mode and obviously use the contraries in order to, to strengthen it. You know, absolutely. It's interesting. So I'm going to go total back to the very beginning speed round when we asked about the crossword puzzles, right? And the, oh, the right. interference piece, right. which I thought this is something that is interesting to me. It's this idea that we often try to just push through when we get stuck. This idea that we just push through, trudge on, carry on, as the English, isn't it? What do the English yeah. say? You know? Yeah. This idea that, you know, if we just put enough brute force and mental processing power into, into something of that decision, that it'll come to us or that problem that we're trying to face, when in fact, it might be better just to stop get away from it, get your brain thinking about something totally else, because then it's the kind of those assembled decisions. You're all of a sudden you're rejumbling what's going on in your brain. And those things that were being interfered with before no longer have that interference. And now they're free to come back and reassemble and have that piece. And I thought that was, again, fascinating from just an individual perspective. I find myself sometimes just trying to trudge through things and I need to probably stop more and just take a break. So is this kind of related to the Zygarnik effect? Is there a little bit of that uh, where we just give ourselves our, our unconscious time to solve problems? I'm sure it is. I'm, I'm sure there's an aspect of that. And, you know, it's, it's a key thing if we think about this from, you know, I mean, I always apply the Zygarnik effect from this idea that I want to start something early and then yeah, not finish yeah. it and give it time and let it in, you know, kind of, you know, percolate it marinate in, the, you, in, yeah. in my, in my brain. And, but I do think that that probably also plays into, into this too. Like if I'm in this moment where I'm trying to figure out what that crossword puzzle, you know, word is, and I just can't think of it, I should probably walk away, do something else. Yeah. You know, yeah. Go take a shower because everybody finds their answers in the shower, you know? Really? I should take more showers. <laughs> well, you should take more showers just in general. I was going to mention that to you earlier, but you know, hey. Thank God we're doing this virtually. Yes. If I could just say one other thing about our conversation with Eric that okay. really struck me. Just and this one was, other thing? Are you sure it's just going to well, be just one? one? We don't often groove on music, musical topics. Not often. We do somewhat, but okay. all right. So I'm justifying. Um, he mentioned Django Reinhardt who is a guitarist that really ushered in uh, with the help of Stefan Grappelli, the, the great violinist, jazz violinist, the, the mode of hot club music that has made a, a resurgence in recent years with hot club bands all over the United States and Europe, uh, Australia, UK. They're, they're pretty much everywhere. 
now. And these are fast flying musicians. These songs just fly. They just have tremendous speed and tremendous agility. And Django Reinhardt was the guy that in France in the 1930s created hot club music. And it's fantastic music. It well, The first time I heard Django, it absolutely, I was just transcendent. It was really that powerful of a musical experience. And then later I learned he only plays with his left hand. He only uses his first two fingers. Wow. And, and you just think about like Clapton only uses three fingers. He never uses his pinky finger when he, when he plays, which is kind of amazing, but to only use two is simply unbelievable, especially at the pace that these songs go. So I just wanted to editorialize and just say thank you to Eric for bringing up Django Reinhardt because whew, that's just fantastic music. See, so this is this is what I do enjoy because I had no clue, you know, Django Who Reinhardt Django was. was. Never heard of him. <laughs> have no idea what hot club music is. Have have never heard of that term. And I, <sighs> you know, all of this is just an educational opportunity for me. On this musical well, front, I am a much well more well-rounded musical uh, connoisseur, consumer, connoisseur, <laughs> connoisseur. I like that actually, <laughs> consumer. Now, because of all of these insights that you have brought to me, and and our guests have brought to me, so there. Thank you okay. for that. Well, let me ask you. Let me ask you this. So okay. Speaking of consuming. Do you have a recollection of a band that you saw at some point very early in their career? And then when you when you when you saw them live, you're like, oh yeah, actually that's like they've got it, you know, oh, like, yeah? they, like they're on their way to success. And then they actually became maybe they actually became a big a big hit. But was there? Did you ever have that experience? Yeah, there was this band, um, Dogs on Skis. Have you heard of them? <laughs> they were an Iowa City cover band, and they were awesome. No, no I'm just joking. Did they, they play they, the student union? <laughs> <laughs> so there's 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 two, and one probably is is isn't there. So I I saw you two. It was '85, so they were probably already big. They were playing stadiums and they were doing that kind of stuff. So that's probably already. Yeah, big. But, I think I think a stadium yeah, does indicate right, that right, you've already right. made it. <laughs> and and this one, I don't know if this fits because they they didn't necessarily make it big, but some of their members did. So Trip Shakespeare. So seeing uh -huh. Trip Shakespeare, and so they were regional and they were big in the Twin Cities. But I saw them first down in Iowa City. And, you know, there were a few hundred oh. people out watching them and it was an outdoor concert venue. And I just I, I fell in love. I, I really did. You and did. I did. Yeah. And they were I mean, it, they if you ever get a chance because they sometimes still come back to together. But if you ever get a chance to see them live, they are freaking fantastic and they're just wonderful. So this and, is the birth of the of the Wilson brothers. Yeah, it's Dan you know. and, and, and Matt Wilson. And yeah. then they and had John Munson, John, was, John Munson, and I can't remember the the they had a female drummer who was a standing drummer. She, you know, Elaine Harris. Elaine Harris. There you go. Okay, see, you know better than me. But where do they go from Trip Shakespeare? So, so nobody Trip knows Shakespeare. Trip, Trip you know, Shakespeare. they ended up breaking up. They. I remember. I so I once I moved up here, I went and I saw them a, a lot more, and again enjoyed them. And then they came out with their album. They said, "This is the album that that's going to make us." And they never captured the same essence on album as they did in their live shows. And I don't know yeah. if that's a producer, what that is. You know, the variety of different factors. Anyway, they broke up. But then. Dan and John 
formed uh semi-sonic semi-sonic i was gonna say pleasure because that was the name of their band before semi-sonic but then they couldn't say it you know so they formed this other band that did become a bit i mean they had closing time which was a huge hit and a number of other things and again they went on to do a you know relatively good and so i don't know if that fits into what you were saying but anyway how about well, you, Mr. Mr. Houlihan? Well, what about you? Well, and, Did you see a band at the beginning and go when they were just at playing pubs and bars and go, yep, this guys are going to be huge or this this person is going to be well, huge? not huge, but I saw Pure Prairie League, Oh yeah, uh, which was a, a band that wrote the song Amy and it's got a very hooky beat. Um, I saw them in a club in um, in Kansas City you know, in a pretty small club in Kansas city before they had written Amy, before that song had even been created. It wasn't part of their live set. Wow. And they were, and like, they did not strike me as being, Oh my God, they're like the next best thing. Unfortunately they did. It was not that kind of, it was, they were good and they were tight, you know, but. So, so interesting fact here, that was the first album that I ever got is my mom bought Pure Prairie League for me, <laughs> and then got my brother Peter Frampton live. Oh wow! Yeah. And we we actually traded. So oh so yeah, okay. my brother took the Pure Prairie League, and I got Peter Frampton live. You got but Peter Frampton. Actually, no, it wasn't was live. It wasn't live. It was the one after live. Um, was there any? I mean, what? what yeah, what I mean, it wasn't. It was you know, Peter Frampton live was huge, 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 and and then he came out with the the album after that, and it wasn't. It was, he had a hit on it, but I can't remember what it was. But anyway, I don't, I don't remember. So that, that I, I, I know who you're talking about. So there you go. <laughs> yeah, Amy was on that, that, that album. That was my first album that I ever had that I then subsequently traded with my brother. So, all right. I think that, <laughs> I think we need to, we need to wrap this up. So, yes. Um, so just to recap our discussion with Eric, we want to remind you of a couple things. First, defaults can be very powerful and decision designers need to be thoughtful about how and where to apply them. And we are all designers. So think about how you use default. And second, there are many ways to minimize the effects of default. And there are some ways to enhance the effects of default. So again, we urge you to be thoughtful in how you use them. Yeah, absolutely. And lastly, we hope that this was a good experience for you. We hope that you gained some knowledge as a decision designer that will help you in your work or your daily life. And if you found this helpful, please take a moment, just take a moment to leave a review or a quick rating on your favorite podcatcher. It goes a long, long way in helping other people discover something that you've already come to love, behavioral grooves. Yeah, we hope you love it. With that, Groovers, we hope that you make a good decision or lots of good decisions this week. Yeah. Decisions to help others in their lives and decisions that will make the world a better place. And so with that, We ask you, go out into the world today and find your groove.